You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to the April edition of Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to bring you our paper of the month, some of the discussion that our friends had about it online, as well as three short papers to discuss a little bit of a theme of measurement. So how are you, Ben? Mate, I'm good. I am pretty pumped. I'm almost away on holidays. So uh, this is almost my last thing to do before I pack. And uh, it's been a really good month. Excellent. I understand you're off to do some more debriefing, upskilling. Yeah, I'm off to Boston to the uh, CMS Advanced Debriefing course. So I'm very excited and going to stop by Disneyland and a few other places. So it's going to be a good time. Sounds like a fabulous mixture. All right. Well, tell us about our paper this month and uh, a pleasing dive into a bit of hardcore quantitative measurement, uh, but a highlight on the whole issue of evaluation of SIM programs. Yeah, it was good. I guess we kind of looked at We've been looking at a lot of debriefing papers lately, so it was good fun to look at an intervention study and uh, see if anything we do makes a difference. So the paper that we looked at this month is called Evaluation of Learning from Practical Obstetric Multiprofessional Training and Its Impact on Patient Outcomes in Australia Using Kirkpatrick's Framework, a Mixed Method Study, and it's by Arunas Kumar et al. and was published in 2018 in BMJ Open. And look, it's often hard to prove that what we do does make a difference, especially in education. And I think in many ways, finding that hard proof that sim education changes patient outcomes is really the great white whale of simulation education research. And in this paper, the authors attempt to catch that whale by using a mixed methods analysis to evaluate whether the implementation of an internationally recognized obstetric simulation program, which is called the PROMPT um, program is associated with an improvement in patient care and they looked at it in three suburban Victorian hospitals which for those who are overseas uh, that's a state in Australia and they tried to prove this by combining a quantitative number crunching approach with a more complex qualitative analysis as well and so they're able to kind of explore the hard data of their patient outcomes and the thematic educational outcomes of the program and they allude to um, sort of trying to answer a lot of the different stages of the Kirkpatrick model, um, which you could probably paraphrase better than me, I reckon, Vic. Putting you on the spot. No worries. I'm not an evaluation expert, but it's true this is a very well-used model. Kirkpatrick's framework talks about the lowest level evaluation, which is basically level one, participant feedback. They liked it. They didn't like it. The second level up is participant change in knowledge in particular, so that's your kind of pre-post uh, analysis. The third level up is whether people actually change their behavior in practice. So do you see them do different things? And the final level up, level four, is have our patient outcomes changed? Yeah. And that was really uh, kind of exciting for me as someone who a bit doesn't have the breadth of reading that you probably do in terms of seeing this translated to something that's really important to me. Because I guess we see a lot of papers that are often in education, you know, they're kind of a whole lump of Likert scales, but this was very much trying to prove, does this educational intervention actually lead to a difference in patient outcome, which was a pretty sexy kind of question. So their two-prong approach involved exploring pre-existing data for emergencies involving eclampsia, shoulder dystocia, neonatal resuscitation, and postpartum hemorrhage from two years before and after the implementation of the PROMPT program. 
And that data explored things like uh, cord lactate, volume of blood loss, neonatal injuries, and the use of certain interventions on the patients. And then they also started analyzing data from pre- and post-course questionnaires. So that involved Likert scales and free tech responses about the course itself to explore any changes in staff attitudes and to explore any particular trends in thematic analysis. And in the end, unfortunately, despite this all looking very sexy and exciting, the paper was able to mostly show statistically insignificant trends towards better patient outcomes for a lot of specific complications. So they were able to demonstrate a trend towards less fractures, better APGAR scores for their babies, less brachial plexus injuries, uh, with the occasional statistically significant change, such as an increase in patients with large volume postpartum hemorrhage going to the operating theatre after delivery, and an increased use of Buckery balloons. Um, the th- thematic analysis of learner feedback revealed some themes about uh, people's reflections on the course. Uh, and in particular, it seemed to me there was a lot of emphasis on reflection on the importance of CRM principles in obstetric emergencies. So in the end, um, whatever the findings, the hospitals involved have formalized the prompt program into their training uh, with mandatory biannual attendance for birth suite staff. So it looks like it's uh, generated some strong buy-in for them within the organization of these hospitals. Uh, But for us, at least in terms of this paper specifically, while there's some promising hints here in the paper of hard evidence of our endeavors, at the moment we're still going to keep searching the sea for uh, more proof that what we do changes patient outcomes. Yeah, I uh, think that's pretty good synopsis of what was a lot of work on this paper, Ben. And I think the thing I most applauded was the uh, hard work they did trying to really get this multifaceted evaluation. And my friends who do live and breathe evaluation, they tell me that you've really got to think hard about what it is that you're trying to evaluate and how there is no single best method. And I think this illustrates that. I think just to kind of add to the background that you described, I think Prompt is one of those courses that uh, is really held up as one of the, here we have some patient outcome data to support it based on the early work of Tim Draycott in the UK, which did show a difference in uh, fetal ischemic hypoxic injury in shoulder dystocia and reduction in transfusion in PPH as a result of introduction of the course. So I guess they'd rather hope to emulate that, but I think as many of the discussants said, uh, it really depends where you start when you're trying to see an improvement in things. But I think for me, one of the great uh, triumphs is just the methods. And that is, let's put a highlight on how we can look at evaluation. Are we going to use things like return on investment? What can we glean out of participant feedback? It doesn't just have to be a binary, do you like it or not? And what is the role of patient outcomes in that evaluation? Um, I think it is a really interesting reflection as well, I guess, in terms of translating a course from one situation to another doesn't necessarily need lead to the same outcome. I think that's a really good point because we do run prompt at our institution and from my reading, I think we run it somewhat differently to the way it was originally run. Uh, it is well liked by the people that do it and it is one of the uh, multidisciplinary programs that is done at our institution as well. So, And it's very skills focused. It's very uh, let's make sure we can do shoulder dystocia and the various manoeuvres, the PPH and the various manoeuvres, it's very focused on here's our identified emergencies and here's what we do about it. So I think it's got a lot of intuitive appeal. Yeah, definitely. So um, with regard to the Journal Clubber's response this month, um, there was quite a breadth of opinion and a lot of very different 
perspectives, but I would have to say, and I'll be interested to see whether you agree, I, I still thought probably the meta conversation on some level was a whole bunch of simulation nerds trying to justify why this paper didn't find the positive results we would hope for. Uh, yeah, I think that was a fairly uh, decent synopsis of what people were saying. Uh, we do like to criticise evidence that doesn't go with what we think. I think if uh, I had to summarise people's kind of responses, the way I grouped it this month was probably that, you know, one, there was a sort of group of us trying to justify the outcome of the paper in a way that didn't lead to crippling heartbreak. Uh, two, that we really had a lot of admiration for the methods used. And I think there was also some hope for the future in that there were some trends demonstrated here and that Prompt had in the past demonstrated uh, significant patient improvements in a number of outcomes. Um, so, look, there are a number of acknowledgements as to why the paper might have been unsuccessful in providing the hard data. Um, Luke Summers noted in his, his a response that, you know, high-risk, low-frequency events by definition would require massive studies to be able to identify any significant objective improvements, um, which is particularly true in, I guess, first-world obstetric medicine where, you know, we have got to a stage where the outcomes are, you know, often very, very good and tragedy is very, very rare. Um, Suneth Jayasakara went further and he said, look, I think this study was set out to be a negative study right from the get-go. I mean, Monash, Monash, which is the hospitals involved, is in all likelihood a mature obstetric centre with highly trained and experienced obstetricians and midwives. Um, and to significantly improve the performance of those practitioners in the outcomes, they looked at a half-day course and that's probably pretty unrealistic. Um, you mentioned uh, in particular, I think you've kind of touched on it already, but that, you know, the the flaw of choosing format-driven education on the basis of a binary it-works-or-not worldview. Um, and you mentioned that um, some of your qualitative research friends would say that we need to explore what works, for whom, when, and under what circumstances. And I guess this is potentially um, a demonstration of that. Um, you said educational interventions are really cookie-cutter, have different impacts in different hands. Um, with regards to the methods, there was a lot of admiration that this was a really beautiful study. And Ben Lawton noted that in particular, <clears throat> kind of obstetrics in general really seems perfect for this kind of study because there's a lot of data that's already collected about maternity outcomes, whether or not you're doing research at the time. Um, so it's a really great way to measure those level four Kirkpatrick outcomes because the patient population is pretty homogenous. Uh, they're you, you know usually healthy women of childbearing age for whom the vast majority of complications come from a fairly small list and all have an outcome, i.e. a baby, who is then assessed with a widely accepted and validated outcome measure like an APGAR score, regardless of whether there's a study going on or not. So it, it's a very well-chosen study for a very you know specific patient population. Lastly, I guess we closed a little bit on hope for the future and Sineth argued that while there's only positive trends shown in this particular study, the educational benefits of such interventions might be more successful in less ter tertiary centres where the levels of experience are not as concentrated, which is kind of similar to what we were talking about just before. So a really interesting month. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks to everyone for coming along. You're listening to Simulcast. I want to spend a little bit of time now just talking about our expert of the month and her opinion. So Dr. Sarah Janssens is a gynecologist who uh, works at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane, and she is perfect fit for this uh, 
expert commentary, I think, because she's both an obstetrician and a simulation educator with a number of claims to fame, including implementing a laparoscopic simulation training curriculum for gynecology trainees. And she just recently came off, I think, six months of uh, fellowship at CMS in Boston as well, and is CMS faculty when they come to Brisbane. Uh, and uh, she gave us a really wonderful and very thorough reflection and critique on this paper, both from the perspective of a simulationist but also as an obstetrician specifically. Um, and she uh, sort of explains why the prompt program is so beloved by obstetric educators and how they have published a number of papers proving association with the program with improved clinical outcomes, including some third-world work. And then she goes into a, a, a beautifully detailed uh, critique of the paper. Um, she highlights the fact that a program that works in one centre might not create the same outcomes in another. And she explores this urge we sometimes have as simulation lovers to ignore the evidence that stuff we're doing doesn't work. Um, her take-home messages were that the program evaluation is not simple, one size fits all, that there's value assessing a program from multiple perspectives and considering a broad range of both qualitative and quantitative outcome measures. Don't expect overwhelming improvements in patient outcomes, but we're going to keep looking when we can. Um, and that we need to think about intangible benefits and how they might be captured. And that we should consider behavioral change theory in program implementation. So it's a really beautiful, uh, very carefully written response I'm very grateful to Sarah for. And uh, please do download our PDF to check it out in full. Yes, I would echo that sentiment because she does give a little bit of a masterclass in how to write a synopsis uh, in an editorial type of way. So I'd encourage her to do a bit more writing because I really enjoyed reading it. I think her take-home points are good and it reminds me of one of Atul Gawande's uh, missives, which is count something. Uh, and you may have to think about how you interpret that, but I think that's the basis of evaluation. Once you start looking, only then can you start understanding. Yeah, I reckon um, obstetrics is really good at that. And also pediatric oncology, I think, has uh, done amazing work in just count everything. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, we might move on to our other papers now, if that's okay. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Well, I took a lead from you this month and I thought, well, I'll pick some papers that are all about measurement because that seemed to be one of the themes in the main paper. So we've got three papers. One's about measuring learning curves and procedural skills. One's about measuring debriefing, perish the thought. And one's about measuring emotion and cognitive load in simulations. So uh, I'll kick off with the first one. So the first one, as I said, it's about procedural learning curve. And the title of this is a comparison of the efficacy and efficiency of virtual reality simulation versus high fidelity mannequins for scenario-based training of fiber optic bronchoscope manipulation. And that's from this month, April 2018, in Simulation and Healthcare. And it's by Jiang et al. from Beijing. And essentially, they start with a fairly obvious premise, which is that procedural skills training needs to be both effective and efficient, preferably. And fiber optic bronchoscopy, it's not within my scope of practice, but I know enough about anesthesia to know that this is the kind of thing that's pretty difficult. It's hard to get good at if you're just waiting for real patient experience. And it's fairly high stakes because when you want to do it, you want to be able to do it fairly slickly and well. So it was probably a pretty good procedure to be comparing learning curves for. 
so then they said, well, we're going to look at two different ways of training our novice practitioners in doing this. One using a virtual reality simulator. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with these things from the simulation world, go and watch that movie, Ready Player One, and it'll introduce you to all the nuances of virtual reality. You've seen that, <laughs> haven't that, you, ben? I haven't yet, but was it good? It was so good. So many 80s references. It was hilarious. Anyway, put your headset on and go with virtual reality. This is a simulator which essentially gives you tactile feedback as well as visual images, makes you feel as though you're doing a bronchoscopy, but you're not actually doing it. These are really expensive, these simulators. It was quoted, I think, as 100,000 euro, which I thought was a bit strange for a Chinese paper publishing in an American journal. I wasn't sure why euros were chosen. But anyway, that's a lot of money uh, in anyone's language. Anyway, they compared this with uh, probably something we're more familiar with, and that is mannequin-based simulation. And if you've hung around sim labs at all, you've probably seen some of these fiber optic bronchoscope trainers. They're a little bit more complex than the standard airway trainer but uh, significantly cheaper than the virtual reality. So they were quoting uh, between two and a half and 3,000 euros for these. So their question was, let's compare the efficacy and efficiency of training using these two methods. So what did they do? They took 23 anesthesia trainees in the virtual reality group and the same number in the mannequin group. Both groups of trainees had some preparation. They watched a video. They got some instructional preparation. And then each group did 25 practice attempts at their modality. And their endpoint to see whether they had achieved their expertise was to test them all on a mannequin, which was kind of interesting. And the way that they tested them was time to achieve the bronchoscopic uh, intubation. And the second was a global rating scale of manipulation as judged by an expert observer who was blinded to which method of training they'd done. Now, what were the results? In terms of efficacy, there was no difference in the endpoint between the two groups. Both groups uh, intubated the mannequin in the final assessment at about the same time, and there was no statistically significant difference in their global rating scale. But they did also look at efficiency, as they said, and in order to measure this, they looked at the learning curves of the two groups. So they actually looked at how good they were over those 25 practice attempts that they did. And they found, and I'm not sure about the significance of this, that uh, that plateaued a little earlier in the virtual reality group. So after 19 attempts, they plateaued, uh, whereas it took them 24 of the 25 for the mannequin group. And unsurprisingly, their final measure was confidence and both groups were more confident after the training than they were before, but there was no difference between the VR or mannequin groups. So what do I think about this? I think it was nice quantitative study that you can do when you're looking at something concrete like learning curves for procedures. That's not to say there's not nuance in those learning curves, but I think this gives us a little illustration of how do we get good at something, how effective is uh, deliberate practice, and probably the modality we use doesn't matter that much. And certainly in terms of cost, you'd have to say the mannequin still looks pretty good. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, look, um, it's it's pretty hard to justify the BR from that study. I really thought going into it and reading the methods that there was going to be some kind of bias, to, bias towards mannequins, but it didn't really play out that way. I guess the only thing that made me think um, – sort of jump in the pro VR column is I do think eventually hopefully this technology is going to get to a stage where it's cheaper and 
you can vary the VR a lot more than you can the physical mannequin. So it makes sense that at some point you can give people a lot more different challenging airways with the VR than you can with a single mannequin and maybe that cost difference is going to even out a little bit but we're certainly not there yet and it was nice to see evidence that the mannequin works just as well. Yeah, I think you're right. That would be the obvious opportunity. The second opportunity is to then not need the instructor. You might recall I did that podcast last year with Risa about an ultrasound simulator, point-of-care ultrasound simulator, which did all the things that the VR simulator does in this case, but it also did the assessment and measured the learning curves and gave the feedback without the need for a human instructor. And I think then you'd start to see the cost a little bit differently as well. Yeah, then we'd be much more pro-mannequin. Rationalizing ourselves out of a job. (laughs) Exactly right. We'd find lots of reasons to have flaws in that study. Simulcast. All right. Well, moving on to measuring debriefing. And uh, I think this paper is probably one to watch because it's going to end up being a research method for many other papers, I think. So it's called Decode, a coding scheme for assessing debriefing interactions. And it's by Sealant and a group which includes Michaela Colby, who we know is a famous sim researcher from Switzerland. And uh, it's also, it's been published in BMJ Stell in 2018, just recently as well. So very interesting. It sort of starts from the premise of you know, debriefing is an art, uh, but there is probably also a science to it. And at least up until now, we haven't been very good at measuring what goes on in debriefing. But it starts from the stance that probably measuring is a good idea because in that way, both we can improve, but we can also start to explore issues like what impact does that have on the learning? Uh, How do we approach faculty development and what kind of variation is there between uh, different contexts? The authors point out in their background that there are some measurement tools for debriefing and they include the DASH and the OSAD. And if you're interested in this, they're pretty much landmark papers and methods to go and look up. And in the lingo used by the authors, these are what are called behavioral marker systems. So essentially with something like the DASH, you sit there watching your colleague, Ben Simon, do some debriefing. You decide whether or not he has established and maintained psychological safety and you make some markings on a um, structured Uh, assessment and then you have a chat later and you talk about it. So it provides a lovely method for saying here are your behaviours and here's a point for discussion. But they then go on and say, well, that's well and good, but it does miss out on a couple of opportunities and instead they talk about a behaviour coding method. And this was sort of new lingo to me, so I'll just sort of um, explain to our listeners what the difference is. They say this allows for a more descriptive assessment of behaviour as it occurs, so it occurs in real time, and allows you to uncover team patterns and dynamics that become apparent over time. I'll move on to what they actually did. And it was very much to me, it was almost like reading about the uh, derivation and validation of the Ottawa ankle rule. So I'm going to take my clinical hat and apply it to this study as I try and understand what they did. Essentially, the group, first of all, of course, looked through the literature on team learning, team debriefing, and then they watched five videotape debriefings and came up with, well, what are the kind of things that we would code in here? And uh, to give you an example, to take some 
ones we're probably familiar with. Guess what I'm thinking questions featured there is something you might code, but also other things like paraphrasing, adding medical input, talking about feelings, talking about mental models. So the whole range of things that they thought these are potentially codes we could apply to the conversations that we're seeing observed. And then they had some subject matter experts look at that initial model and go, yeah, these seem like pretty good codes to be applying. And then they went through and essentially, I'm going to use the term validated, although they wouldn't, uh, applied the coding scheme then to a large number of both videotaped and live debriefings to see if it worked in real time. So we've got our codes in front of us now, we're watching the debriefing, and we're trying to apply the codes to different elements in the debrief and then coming up, well, how many times were emotions discussed? How many times were opinions discussed? How much time was there laughing or irony and humour? And uh, then looked at how much inter-rater reliability was there and what kind of uh, outcomes did they observe. Without going too deeply into their methods because partly I don't understand all of them, but they essentially looked at that inter-rater reliability and they found that where there were some of their codes that weren't as good as others, surprise, surprise, some people might call something irony and humour while others might call it wasted time. I don't understand those second groups. But (laughs) exactly, blistering sarcasm was not a code. It probably should have been. Uh, But I think what this shows us, but they basically showed that you can do this and it is a good method to do and at least here is a starting point for how we might start to, at least in a research context, look at a debriefing and describe what is going on in terms of the learner-debriefer interactions. I don't think it's going to be the kind of thing where most of us as punters sit down and look at our colleagues and sit there with a bunch of codes and, and go to that granular level, but I think it is the kind of thing that then we can use as a tool to answer some really interesting uh, next steps. How much variation is there between individuals? What is the role of different kinds of contexts? What about the levels of learners? And I think start to see some of the stuff that we might suggest anecdotally in terms of ratios of, say, technical content to CRM content um, and really start to test that out using a validated tool like Decode. So I think it's important work. Uh, I think there's clever people doing it. I don't know that necessarily we'll use it day-to-day debrief the debrief, but I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very important kind of development for research. And I guess my note was I'd written, look, this is either incredibly cool for future research, or I guess my only fear was that it could be incredibly reductive for teaching how to debrief sometimes. And I, I just worry sometimes um, if it was used in the wrong kind of situation, it could end up in, uh, well, you did nine, guess what I'm thinking, and uh, two episodes of irony. Therefore, that was not a good debrief. Um, I'd have to say, even sometimes with the dash, I, f- I find it, it can get in the way of having a meaningful conversation about what you wanted your learners to learn and how you went about that and whether it worked or not. So I just worry about it falling into the wrong hands, I guess, but uh, really interesting from a research perspective and I think it's amazing work. Yes, I think your warning is well taken. Uh, How you use these tools often is the much harder question than whether they are effective for the purpose that they were designed for. I think so. And the other thing that scared me, though, if I can read a quote from the paper that was kind of irrelevant but terrifying, was they wrote, uh, even more, a recent meta-analysis on team training in healthcare concluded that training programs that involved feedback were less effective than programs without feedback. 
Although debriefing includes much more than giving feedback, this finding is unsettling and calls for further and more detailed research. And I just just coming on the on the back of this month and not finding a difference in outcomes with the prompt study, that was a little bit emotionally overwhelming for me. <laughs> It's lucky much. you're going on. It's it's lucky much. you're going on holidays, mate. You can you can relax yeah, for a bit. Well, the evidence says we shouldn't be doing this, so I just have to quit. <laughs> Maybe this next paper will be relevant as well because we could start to measure your emotional state. <laughs> you're listening to Simulcast. Paper number three: Evaluation of cognitive load and emotional states during multidisciplinary critical care simulation sessions. And first author on this is my friend Swapnil Power from uh, the St George's ICU in Sydney, and I've done some work with them, so I have to admit I was biased in selecting this paper. But I think it is another important measurement theme because it starts to look at some of the things we think are important in simulation and in debriefing, and that is emotional state and cognitive load, and at least look at ways we can measure that without necessarily going to the next step of thinking what is the learning impact. So what they did here is they ran a simulation in their intensive care, and for the purpose of the study, they used a standardized scenario of an upper GI bleed in a pretty sick patient. And they measured two things in the folks participating in these simulations, and they were critical care teams, multidisciplinary. They measured their emotional state, and they measured them before the simulation and after the simulation, and they also measured their cognitive load, which they only did after the simulation. And they essentially were going to look at, well, what was the total numbers on these scales and uh, how did they vary between the groups. So some of the interesting parts of this paper is the tools that they used to actually do this measurement. So they use two scales and the assessing emotion scale is a tool by Feldman and they've got a nice little figure in the paper there that creates a sort of Uh, as they describe it, bipolar opposite effect emotional state. So, for instance, on one level you've got tense versus calm, nervous versus relaxed, and it's got a number of ratings that people had to say, here is where I was before I started and here is where I was afterwards. Uh, And then the other tool they used is this cognitive load scale by Pass and Van Merenbaugh. And again, this looks at cognitive load from very low mental effort to very, very high mental effort, so a scale of one to nine. So what did they actually find? Uh, Not surprisingly, there was a change in the emotional state before and after the simulation, although not necessarily what I might have predicted. But in particular, they were more relaxed, more excited and more alert which, again, I'm not sure that those things all come together. But, you know, it's tricky, I think, with these scales. They're sometimes difficult to interpret. Uh, Perhaps as interesting, if not more so, was that the mean cognitive load that they measured at the end was 6.6. I remember this was a scale of 1 to 9, so this was pretty high. And based on the literature around that scale, actually this is a pretty good level at which people have the right amount of cognitive load for learning. So, Whatever we think about the fallibilities of the scales, they've done a good job of actually measuring them within the sim. Uh, And then in their discussion, they sought to look at what was the variation between people. There were no differences between doctors and nurses, for instance. Uh, And they sought to think about how might manipulating this cognitive load lead to learning outcomes. But, you know, that was all pretty much discussion. It wasn't something that they studied specifically in the paper. So my synopsis of this is, um, once again, a sort of good start in thinking, well, how do we measure 
cognitive load because then I suppose we can start to look at the next questions of how does this relate to the learning or other outcomes that we're trying to achieve in our sim. Yeah, it was an interesting paper. I I was, a, and I hope I haven't misinterpreted it, but one thing that worried me a little bit was that it, it seemed like it was essentially learner self-assessment of their own emotional state, though, wasn't it? They were reporting based on those scales. Absolutely. And I guess I just worry that your own perception of your own emotional state isn't necessarily always accurate, particularly in a stressful situation like a, a, a resuscitation. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I just worry that we were able to demonstrate that people think what state they're in. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the same as actually measuring emotional cognitive overload. And I particularly worried with cognitive overload that that's a pretty complex question. And I think it could easily sort of have a system one, system two kind of substitution where you to that question where you're basically going, was this a hard sim or not? Because I actually found it really interesting that the doctors and the nurses rated the cognitive overload very similarly, even though the tasks that they might performing might be very different and different scenarios might lead lead to stressful situations for different groups within a resuscitation. So I found that a bit odd and I just wondered whether there was actually some subconscious kind of assessment of the group performance overall rather than a hard measurement. Yes, and I think that's probably an opportunity missed as yet uh, to compare between scenarios and, as you say, then also to compare with performance. But in particular, if you had a relatively simple scenario, do you actually then observe a difference in the cognitive load or is there something inherent in the scale that maybe means we don't quite get the result that we're looking for? Yeah, it was interesting. I I took away a couple um, other sort of, oh, what's the right word, more obtuse learning points from this study as well in that um, just from a role modeling point of view, I found it really interesting that they described the avoidance of patient death as an extraneous load that impairs learning. Um, and they also very much advocated for this principle that a well-designed scenario is one that has extraneous load minimized. And I thought that was a really important principle that doesn't get talked about heaps, um, that they kind of summarized the concepts behind that really nicely in the introduction to the paper as well. So it's even worth a read just for that. That's a good point. And you might notice one of the authors is Michael Megadushian, who is a bit of a cognitive load fan, runs workshops on this, and he's from uh, New York Hospitals and Healthcare SIM. And uh, we actually did a little pause and discuss with him uh, at SIM Health year before last on exactly that. And as you say, reading about cognitive load is a good idea because I think for me, it certainly helped me understand why some of my SIMs have worked and why they have not in the past about the difference between the intrinsic and the extraneous and the germane cognitive load. That's a good, uh, good point, Ben. Yeah, it was great learning for me. All right. Well, that's uh, all the papers that I had to talk about this month. As I said, a little bit of a deep dive into thinking about measurement and evaluation in all its forms. And uh, Ben, because you're going on holidays, we're having a month off. Well, I'm having a month off. Yeah. So sorry, I'm forcing it on everyone else. Oh, oh can I just add as well? Uh, yes. For June, I really want to do a critical event debriefing paper. So if anyone has a suggestion on a good one, uh, send me a note on Twitter.
Well, that's good. Well, we will wish you having a good time. Don't worry. We'll have a <clears throat> new case up though for June, even though we're taking May as a week, as a month off. Uh, and also in the meantime, there's a couple of podcasts coming out, one with me and Jenny Rudolph on rapport. And uh, Jesse's also recorded a podcast with myself and Glenn Posner about insight simulations. So don't worry, simulcast listeners, you will have something to listen to even while Ben is on holidays. <laughs> so... Uh, you have a really good time, mate, and uh, that's it from us uh, signing off from Simulcast Journal Club. Simulcast. <laughs>